Hey guys, welcome to the City Baptist Church Sermon Podcast, where it's our mission to help you find and follow Jesus. Today's message is from our brand new collection of sermons that will go through the book of Revelation. And it's our hope that uh, you will be inspired and encouraged by the truth of God's word today. So here's Pastor Paul, and let's get right into the message. Uh, One of the interesting things about life that I've noticed is that whenever there's a group of people, uh, maybe a famous family, uh, or some sort of a, a, I don't know if you want to call them a squad or a group of people, it's always, isn't it funny how you typically only remember one of their names? Look, if I said to you, if I said to you, this is maybe going back a little ways, if I said, all right, name me the Jackson Five, <laughs> who would we all say? I mean, we'd say Michael, right? Of course, Michael Jackson, he would be the one we think of. If I say uh, the Beatles, most people think of one of them. Maybe it's different for you. Uh, I don't really know much about him at all, but I guess what? I know John Lennon, so I know that name. And so we remember one of them. If you think about the Wahlbergs, if I say the Wahlbergs, we think of Marky Mark, right? We think of Mark Wahlberg. And uh, of course, that guy's uh, in so many different movies. Maybe for some of you, if I said, uh, name, me, name me the Splash Brothers, the Splash Brothers, or the Bash Bros, maybe <laughs> those, the Splash Brothers, we'd all say, well, Stephen Curry, of course, that is one of the Splash Bros. And some of you would say, I don't know what you're talking about. And that's okay. But it's, the point is, is that typically when you have a group of people or there's some sort of famous family, we can name all sorts of them, you typically can remember one of them sort of stands out to you. Now, when you come to the seven churches of Asia Minor, if I was to say to just some, uh, just uh, any Christian at any point say, hey, name me the churches of Asia Minor, almost everybody without fail would mention the Laodicean church church, the church that we're going to talk about today. Very few, I think, would mention, oh, 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 oh Sardis, Sardis, you know, or, or Pergamos. Uh, but almost everybody could say the church at Laodicea. And the reason is, is that this is a church that is often mentioned in, in messages. I mean, pastors love to go to this passage and they love to talk about it. And, and people, of course, know the, the uh, illustrations that Jesus used in describing them. And uh, we see, of course, as well, a, a close relation to the church today in 2021. There's a lot of connecting aspects of it. But either way, the church at Laodicea is probably one of the most infamous churches uh, in all of the seven that were mentioned. And it is with good reason. And the reason is, is that even though they seem to be a church that had a lot of blessings from God, it looked like God had just poured out his financial blessings and his, his, uh, his goodness to that church. The fact is they were thoroughly condemned by God in this passage we're gonna see. You know, sometimes when you get to the last, you think, all right, God saved the best for last. In fact, (laughs) you might've saved the worst for last here with the Laodicean church. And that's where we're going to be today. Now, I want to remind us as we sort of conclude this, a little bit of a series that we're in, uh, these are letters to specific churches. We recognize that. But within each of the letters that are given to the churches, we recognize uh, characteristics that can be seen in each of us individually. I had somebody ask me this week, they said, hey, uh, uh, Paul, if you were to describe City Baptist Church, which of the seven churches are you? <laughs> I, I don't want to put any of you in that position. That's a tough one. And, and what I said is like, I can't, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't because the fact is, is, is what I notice more about this is that, sure, there's churches that represent each of these different ones throughout different periods of time. We know that. Um, but the fact is, is that the local church is made up of a body of believers. It's made up out of individuals. And so maybe if we broke it down into more of an individual level, we could ask ourselves the question, if I was to compare myself, if I was to compare my personal walk with God or my personal outlook on life, which of these churches would I reflect more? I think we need to not lose out on that importance that 
these apply to us individually as well. It's not just like, oh, look at that bad church over there or look at that good church over there. No, no, no. We need to make it and boil it down to that individual level. That's really where the application begins to uh, get connected. But the, the, the fact is, is that this last book here or this last letter right here is a warning. It's a sober warning to the church. And for us, I want to remind us that when we come to these passages, we need to hear from God with a humble spirit. We need to recognize how great our need is for God as he corrects us uh, so many different ways throughout scripture. And so today I want, really want to um, boil it down to that personal level if we can, as we look at this church here in Laodicea. Now, like I've mentioned, uh, this, uh, we're kind of on this bit of a curve as we've been. And sure enough, if you continue to go southeast uh, from Philadelphia, where we were last week, you would come to the church here in Laodicea. It's about 72 kilometers away. And it was held within a region called Phrygia. Say that. Some of you are feeling kind of Phrygia right now, right? A little bit cold. It's like being in a fridge in here. Uh, but Phrygia was sort of the, uh, uh, I guess you call it like the province or the area there. And the capital, the ancient capital of Phrygia was this city called Laodicea. Now, Laodicea was a major banking center uh, in the area and had, very two, had two very prosperous industries. The first industry that they were prosperous in was in the uh, manufacturing of uh, clothing from a very specific uh, black-wooled sheep that was native to the area. And so they made this, clo this clothing that was uh, black and it was soft, it was glossy, and it was very, very highly prized. And so for them, uh, that was an area that they, that they trafficked in and they made a lot of money doing that. The second was that there was a medical pharmacy school there in the region, and they specialized in a eye salve uh, that they put on people's eyes. And uh, Aristotle called it Phrygian ointment, but it came here from the city of Laodicea. Now, they were a part of the Roman Empire, like we know, and they were a center for Roman worship. However, this city particularly was very, very self-sufficient very self-sufficient. Now, if you remember last week, we talked about Philadelphia and how uh, they had been destroyed in an earthquake. And then who came along, right? The Roman empire came along and the emperor came in and he rebuilt the city for them. Well, the same thing happened to Laodicea. They were destroyed by an earthquake. However, they rebuilt it themselves without any help from Rome whatsoever. And they were very, very proud of that fact that they were able to get this together. They were proud of their achievements. This was a city that was very uh, proud of the fact that they could take care of themselves and they didn't need any help from the Roman Empire. Sure, they were under occupation, but I mean, they were wealthy. They had everything that you could possibly want. And this attitude of self-sufficiency, this attitude of we've got it all figured out, we can take care of ourselves, found its way into the church. And as a result, what we'll see is it was the source of many of their problems that Jesus specifically addressed it here uh, to this final church. Now, historically, we would recognize this church as the church of the last days. Uh, if you were to connect it into uh, different ages of church history, it would be the age that we're in right now. The church, sort of the final church before Christ returns and brings his people home. We would, some people identify this church as the church of the Western world. And I think you'll see some identifying factors of that uh, here throughout the message today. But it was a church that was empty. It was a church that was spiritually dry. It was a church that was removed and really had removed themselves from the plan that God had for the local church. And Jesus has a very stern warning for them and for the individuals who carry the same kind of mindset as the church at Laodicea. So let's get right into it with verse number 14 as we see the description of Jesus given to us. He says, and unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write. Now I just want to remind us here, the message was first of all given to the messenger, the pastor, the one who was to take it to the church, meaning the message is also for them first of all. And so he says, hey, pastor, Leader, church leader, this is for you, first of all. Bring this to the church. He says, these things 
saith the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. Now, each of the letters begins with a description of Jesus Christ. Each of them has been unique to the church, and a lot of them connect directly into what Jesus is about to address specifically uh, to those individuals. And here we see Jesus described in a few different ways. Notice how he says, saith the amen. So Jesus is described as the amen. Now, amen is a word that we use sometimes in church, right? Uh, or now, you know, we honk the horn or whatever it is. Actually, don't do that. Uh, you'll scare everybody sitting here, but we'll say amen. And what does that mean? That means uh, I agree with this. Let it be so is actually its, its, its natural definition is let it be so. so. That's why in church, sometimes you might hear somebody say amen. They're saying, yeah, let it be so. We're agreeing with you. It's an acknowledgement of the fact here, though, when it comes to Jesus, that Jesus is in fact who he says he is. He's described himself in so many ways throughout the passage. And so we recognize Jesus as true and, and binding. Jesus is the affirmation of God's truth to the church. Notice as well, it says that he is the faithful and the true witness. Uh, What this reminds us of is that the spiritual that Jesus is about to give to this church is true. So what Jesus is about to say to them is the facts. This This is exactly what is going on. Now, our society today, we struggle with trust, don't we? We struggle, we're very suspicious today. Uh, We're so concerned and we think that everyone's trying to deceive us and And there is some reason to believe that, to be honest with you. But when it comes to Christ, we can always trust him. He is true. He is faithful. And it says he's a faithful witness, meaning what he's about to say, in fact, is true. And then he says that he is the beginning of the creation of God. Now, this does not mean that Jesus was created by God. What it actually means is that Jesus is uh, the one to do the creating. It means he is the source. Literally, that's what it means. It means he is the source of creation. See, we have to remember that Jesus is the beginning of all things. He was there during creation. He was a part of creation as well for our lives today. Jesus is the beginning of all good things, isn't he? He's the beginning of of true satisfaction of life, of purpose and of meaning, of significance, of love, joy, and peace. Jesus is the source of all of those things. He is the true source. If you remember John chapter one and verse number three, where it says that all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And Jesus is the source. He is the confirming. He is the faithful. He is the true witness. And when we trust in him and when we trust his word, we recognize that what he says is in fact true. You say, I know this, I know this, but do you really believe it? Do you really believe the fact that when Jesus speaks, when he, uh, when he is talking to us, that what he is saying is true? So often we like to disagree with God, don't we, right? And God speaks to us, we're like, well, maybe you don't know the whole story, God. Maybe you don't really know me that well. But in fact, Jesus is the true and he is the faithful witness. And so when it comes to what he's gonna talk about this morning, I want for us to examine our hearts. I want for us to examine uh, what's really going on within us to truly ask ourselves, how does my own heart reflect God's instructions to the church. Does Jesus see what he's about to talk about? Does he see this in me as well? Jesus here turns to the church. And like I mentioned, there is nothing that he can commend the church for. And that's a sad, sad fact here. That's a sad fact. There's nothing that he can promote. It's simply correction that needs to be sent towards them. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 16. He said, you shall know them by their fruit. Remember that? Well, what we're about to see here is a truth, a church that's fruit is revealing what's really going on. And in fact, what it reveals is that there's a problem. You've heard me say it before. When there's a fruit problem, there's a what? There's a root problem. When there's a fruit problem, there's a root problem. And that's what we're gonna see as we get into this church. So point number one today, if you're taking notes, I want you to write down a deep rooted problem. 
we see a deep-rooted problem in the church at Laodicea. Look at verse 15. Jesus says, I know thy works. We've covered that extensively, what that means. He says, I see uh, to the core, I know. And he says, I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would, that thou wert cold or hot. (laughs) So then, because thou art lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Because thou sayest, here's why, I am rich, I'm increased with goods, have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now there is a lot here in this verse. But Jesus here makes a connection to them. Oh, we lost our backdrop. That's okay. (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) That's all right. Does it look still okay, guys? Everybody all right? Okay, good. I just heard a whoa. I thought, man, I really read that verse very well. (laughs) Great. (laughs) Thanks for that. If it's going to bother you, you guys can set it up. I don't really care. It's totally up to you. All right, so let's focus in here. So here's what he says. So he comes to them and he talks about this idea of they're not hot, they're not cold, they're lukewarm. I'm going to, you know, spew you out of my mouth. Now, it's interesting, but this has a connection, literally a connection to the Laodicean water supply. Now, this is so great how God speaks in this way. Now, the church at Laodicea, or actually the town of Laodicea, did not have a good source of water that they could access. And so they literally built aqueducts where they could pipe in both hot water from Hierapolis and cold water from Colossae. Now, this is really interesting. But the problem was, is that those cities were so far away and the water sources were so far away that they needed to get to so that by the time the water actually got to Laodicea, it was no longer hot and and then it was also no longer cold. Does that make sense? And so this was a a, a situation that was going on here. No matter uh, where it came from, it ended up being lukewarm. Now, I know there's some of you out here that are like, Pastor Paul, don't you know that drinking water at room temperature is the best for your body? Okay, yes, I, I, recognize, I recognize those things. I recognize those things. But let me ask you this. If that cold water ran for 10 kilometers in a stone aqueduct and was full of minerals when it got to you, I don't know that you would drink that either or say that that is necessarily the best water. Um, but this was one of the issues that was there in the, situ- in, in the region there. And I just want you to know, I normally drink room temperature water if I'm drinking. It's good for you. I understand that. But the idea, of course, is hot, which was therapeutic and was helpful, and then cold, which was refreshing and, and, and wonderful. The water, in fact, though, was lukewarm. And by all accounts of history, it was foul tasting, but it was all that they had. And so Jesus says to this church, though, he says, you're not hot, you're not cold, you're just lukewarm. He says, I wish you were one or the other. But then he says that I will spew you because you're lukewarm. I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. You know what that word means? In, uh, in, in today's English, vomit is what it means. <laughs> it means vomit. Some churches made Christ weep. <laughs> Some churches made Christ upset. This church made Christ sick. Think about that for a moment. This made Christ sick. See, Jesus desired that the church would be either hot or cold not this sort of middle ground. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, there's two ways of looking at it. I want to share them with you just real quickly. One author put it this way. He said, hot people are those that are spiritually alive and possess the fervency of a transformed life. The spiritually cold, on the other hand, are best understood as those who reject Jesus Christ. So for them, he says that this basically represents the saved and the unsaved. For those that are cold, the gospel leaves them unmoved. It evokes no spiritual response in them. They have no interest for Christ. They have no interest for his word. They have no interest for his church. And they don't make any pretense about it. 
He says the lukewarm, though, fit into, they don't really fit into either category. Genuinely saved and not genuinely on fire, but they're also at the same time don't necessarily openly reject the gospel. They're not so cold that they're like, I want nothing to do with it. They still have elements of the gospel and elements of, of, of the, the word of God that they try to add into their lives. But the fact is they're still not necessarily saved. And so they don't really accomplish anything. And what, all they become at that point is, is self-righteous hypocrites. It's basically what they become. The cold, uh, for the person that's cold, you may at least be able to show them that they're lost, right? You say, hey, you're cold, you're lost. But for the lukewarm, they still have that, uh, that, that internal religious feeling or that, that idea that, uh, you know, maybe somebody who like, I grew up going to church, or they just have this idea that I, I must be a Christian because of, of who I am. And they're hard to reach. Uh, the second way that we could look at this passage is as a metaphor from Jesus is that both hot and cold are positive things. I've often heard it said, well, you know, you're either on fire and you're hot for Christ or you're cold for Christ. And those are negatives and lukewarm's negative. You got to be hot. You got to be ready to go. But you could also look at it a different way where both are positives. You could look at it um, that uh, rather than seeing them as spiritual temperatures, but seeing them both as useful and helpful. The water from the hot springs in Hierapolis was therapeutic. It was uh, healing. It was restorative. The cold water, like I mentioned from Classe, was refreshing and it, was, it could quench your thirst. Both were positive things. So you could look at it that way. By the time they reached the, the city, they were really not very helpful at all. They were unsatisfying. But Christ wished that you were cold, that you were refreshing, that there was a, a, a refreshing therapeutic aspect to you. But at the same time, maybe you were hot and you made a difference as well too. There's nothing like going and sitting in a hot tub for a while, right? <laughs> and just when you got those sore muscles. But either way you look at it, either way you try to uh, interpret or pursue that passage, the fact remains the church in Laodicea was not what they should have been. They were not what they should have been. They were not what Christ wanted them to be. They were lukewarm. But not only were they lukewarm, but they were also proud. Notice how he said there, because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing. See, this church thought that they had it all. They had the ability to do everything on their own completely. They, they said here, we are increased with goods, meaning that we can just, we can develop, we can build wealth if we want. We can do whatever it is that we want. And this was an established church. And for whatever reason along the way, I believe they lost their way. Uh, by the time they had their buildings built and they had money in the bank and they could do all the ministry they wanted or they could pay whoever it was that they wanted. And they, uh, um, maybe as, as, as sometimes happens, the wealthy in the church uh, stopped wanting to hang out and have the servants in the church with them as well. And they just sort of lost that, uh, that book of Acts, New Testament church kind of feeling and they moved beyond their need of God. In fact, maybe they thought that we don't even need God anymore. We've done all this on our own. Look at what we have built. It's like the farmer says, I built all these barns and I filled them up. I'm going to build bigger ones. But what we also see is that they were proud, but they were also blind. Notice what Jesus said there at the end of the verse. He says, knowest not that you, you're rich, increase with goods, but you know not that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Jesus says they don't even know their true condition. He says they're wretched. That means they're afflicted. They're suffering in spiritual misery, and they don't even know it. He says that they are miserable. That means they should be pitied, even though they have all this wealth. He says you are to be pitied. He says they are poor. That's the idea of being so severely poor that you're at the, at the point of begging just for your basic necessities. He says you're blind. You're unable to see spiritual things. You're naked. That means you don't have uh, any spiritual garments. You're just exposed to the world. Now, materially and outwardly, this was a very, very impressive church. 
I mean, I don't know how much money you have to say or have to have to say, I have needed nothing. I've got everything. Everything's good to go. I mean, you got to be pretty well off to, to maybe to say that. But the outward appearance was deceiving. They had left God to the side. They were spiritually blind. Their religion was only skin deep and it was sickening to God and church. It should be sickening to us today. As we read the description of this church and the, the pridefulness of the heart and they're just like, hey, we are rich. We've got everything we need. We, we don't need God anymore in essence is what they're saying. They had no trust in God. That should turn our stomachs. <laughs> you know, if you yourself are at the point of life where you're like, you know what? I, I think I've got things figured out. I think, I'm, I think I'm all good. We were talking with somebody recently and uh, Jeanette and I were and uh, we were talking about like stages of life and we're like, you know, the stages that we're in right now in our 30s, it's a good stage. And the reason it's a good stage because we kind of have some things figured out, you know, <laughs> not enough things, but we have a few things figured out, you know, we're not so insecure and still like maybe uh, trying to, you know, get certain aspects of our life sorted out. And, and, and it's nice. It's a nice, secure place to be. Um, but imagine being at the place in your life where you're like, I don't need God anymore. I don't need to trust him anymore. I, I, I have enough wealth. I have enough whatever. I can just do whatever. That should thicken us. Like I mentioned, this really does reflect the modern day church today. And it's true. Many churches today, well-established, hundreds of years old, or even, even older than that and younger are very well-established. And they maybe have everything figured out and They've got all, all things uh, sorted and they've got their religious practices and their you know, predictable lit, uh, liturgy every week and they've got the building paid for and all the staff is handled and they've got all of these things, but the gospel really has no impact anymore in their life. They don't live by faith. They don't trust God anymore. And the, the danger is that when we remove God from the equation and we're like, hey, we've got it all sorted out. We can trust in this. What happens? Well, what, they try to then continue that level of respectability, if you want to call it that. And the only way that they can continue to do that is by then acquiescing to the world and what the world says they should do. And you know what, guys, we're seeing that today. We're seeing churches that have been long established and have walked away maybe from the faith. And now what do we see them doing? We see the philosophies of the world and the, 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 the viewpoints of the sinful world around us pressuring them. And they just say, all right, we'll just give into it. And they try to bring those things together and they try to make it compatible. But in fact, they're moving further and further away. Even if they say, oh, we are more Christ-like in this kind of approach. Even though they say, oh, we're more like Christ. The fact is they are further and further away from God and they are buried in their spiritual blindness. It can happen to us as individuals as well. It, very easily, we can allow an attitude of self-sufficiency of saying, God, I don't need you anymore in my life. I've got this all figured out. And we let that creep into our hearts. And what it does is it causes us to be blind to who we truly are. Notice when Jesus, uh, when he showed them their blindness, what did he say? He says, you're wretched, you're poor. I mean, you are destitute, meaning you need me is what he's saying. And we need, should not ever allow ourselves to get to that comfortable place where we're not living by faith, where we're only dependent on our own abilities and on our own wealth and our own uh, um, I guess, ability to make things happen, <laughs> to make things uh, go through that we want us to go, uh, things that we want to see happen. We must be aware of that because it can become a very deep-rooted problem. And that's what we see here in the church at Laodicea. They had a deep-rooted problem. And Jesus, he just gives it straight to them, doesn't he? <laughs> he, he, he? I mean, these are strong words. But I want you to notice that even though he has strong words for them, he doesn't just abandon them. He doesn't just leave them. 
And so secondly, in verse 18, we see a corrective counsel. So there's a deep-rooted problem, first of all. But now Jesus gives a corrective counsel in verse 18. He says, I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and white raiment, that thou mayest be clothed, that the shame of thy nakedness do not appear, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mayest see." Now, Jesus could have rained judgment and destruction on this church, couldn't he? <laughs> he could have just been like, all right, I'm bringing it. You know, this is enough. You guys are, are lukewarm. You've been lukewarm for too long. But instead, what we see him do is give counsel that would lead them to salvation and counsel that would lead them to restoration. And so he reaches out to them and he says, I want you to acquire three different things. Now that brings up the question, how can we buy something from God? You notice you have a little roadside stand, you know, and if you've got enough Bitcoin, you can, you know, buy whatever it is that he's offering. No, 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 not at all. We know that we cannot buy anything from God. In fact, uh, Isaiah chapter 55, verse one, gives us a great example of this, where it says that everyone that thirsteth, uh, thirst, uh, come ye to the waters. And it says, and he that hath no money, come ye, he says. Even if you don't have any money, just come. And then he says, buy, <laughs> wait a minute, if you don't have money, you're going to come and you're going to buy and eat. Yea, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Jesus says, you can come and you can still receive things from me. We know there's no earthly money that can buy anything of the Lord. So we recognize this is a spiritual aspect of nature in nature. And that's what's great about our God. For the spiritual wealth and spiritual blessings, we don't need to have, there's nothing that we can do to earn it or to pay for it. That's the great thing, including our salvation. So Jesus says, come and buy. And what does he talk about? He says, you need gold that's tried in the fire. Now, what he's doing here, he's encouraging this wealthy church to replace their earthly riches with something that is far pure, which is a genuine, pure walk with God. First Peter 1, 7 says that the trial of your faith, so your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to trade your earthly riches and I want you to come to me for true faith. Faith that is pure. Faith that is not fake. Faith that is not just put on. You know, when you uh, put those pure metals and, and precious metals through fire, what does it do? It reveals the impurities and you're able to remove them so you have more of a pure metal. That's what he's trying to say here. Your faith needs to be pure. As well, he says, I want you to receive white raiment. Now, again, this is a connection, right? What were they known for? Black, uh, black wool and black clothing and different things that, they, that were unique to that region. And I'm sure they're very proud of it. And, uh, and I'm sure that many people wore it, you know, to church on Sunday. I mean, it was well-known. It was high quality. It was great stuff. But Jesus is trying to explain to them, listen, you need those white robes of righteousness. Again, this is a spiritual aspect, right? He's not against a cloth from those sheep. He created those sheep, right? <laughs> so he's not against them. But he says, you need these robes of righteousness so that you would not be ashamed. Remember, they were naked, they were exposed. And you need this righteousness so that you would not be ashamed. That can only come through faith in Christ. Isaiah 61.10 says, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God for he hath clothed me with garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. Six places alone in Revelation, just in the book of Revelation, we see how those in heaven are clothed in white robes, a picture of that new life and of righteousness that comes from Jesus Christ. Revelation 19 verse eight, it says, and to her, uh, speaking about the church, was granted that she should be arrayed uh, in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. So the, 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 the clothing there is the representation of the righteousness of the saints that, of course, we receive from God. He also says that we need to, they needed to anoint their eyes with eye salve. And you're like, wait a minute, that's what they, that's what they make there. 
They would have been very familiar with it. But again, this is a spiritual thing. The Laodiceans were blind. They did not see uh, reality. They were living, as someone said, in a fool's paradise. (laughs) They were uh, proud of the church, but they were about to be rejected. And what they needed was that famous eye salve, but a spiritual eye salve. in verse number he that lacketh these things is blind he these if you don't have these aspects of the christian life you're really you're blind to reality and christ is trying to show these laodiceans here he's trying to say to them listen your true value is not in your material possessions but in a right relationship with god their possessions and their achievements were valueless compared with the everlasting future of christ's kingdom and that same counsel is available to us. Now, this is, the, this is what he's trying to understand this. He says, listen, your wealth, your famous ointments, your uh, clothing, all of these things that you have, he says, they are nothing compared to a rich and a pure and a right relationship with Jesus Christ. See, when you find yourself like the Laodicean church where you're just, uh, you, you, you've got it all figured out and you're living without God, the counsel is, is to Okay, look away from all of these earthly wealth, all of this earthly riches, and let's return to Jesus Christ. Let's return uh, to having our minds stayed on him, focus on eternity and not just the aspects of this world. And this is the corrective counsel that Jesus gives to them. He says, hey, let's get things right. But I want you to notice as we continue here, thirdly, a loving approach. So there was a deep-rooted problem that Jesus had some corrective counsel for. But I don't want us to miss out on the fact as to how Jesus reached out to them. And he reached out to them in a very loving way. Look at verse 19. He says, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. You know, when I read these passages, sometimes my my selfish and my fleshly thought is, why would Jesus even waste time with these guys, right? (laughs) Why, Why waste time with them? And then I have to sit back and say, okay, he's... He's wasting his time with me and I'm thankful for that, right? But why why would God waste time with these churches? Why didn't he just destroy them? Well, it's because he loves them. He loves them. And even though he's taking a strong approach in correction and uh, showing them what's wrong, the purpose of this letter is to bring about repentance and restoration. Remember, it is God's mercy that saves us and it is God's mercy that restores us back into that right relationship with him. And so Jesus, he clearly confronts them, but he does so from a father's heart, a pure heart of loving correction because it is for the best. You know, today is Mother's Day. And mothers, you know, when you think about your mom, I know for me, I think about my mother's correction. (laughs) Okay, maybe I'm the only one. That's okay. My mom corrected me many, many times, many, many times. And the reason my mom corrected me is because she loved me, not because she hated me, not because she, you know, was trying to make my life miserable. Even though I said, stop making my life miserable, she was correcting me because she loved me. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The, those I love, I come after. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't, he wouldn't confront us about these things. And so he comes to this uh, church and he says, I'm going to confront you. And I have a, a two outcomes that I'd like to see. Notice there in the verse, the outcomes were that they would be zealous and that they would repent. To a lukewarm and to a complacent church, Jesus says, I want you to be zealous. That is the perfect fruit that would describe the fruit of their repentance. 
So when Jesus says, you know, for them to go to, from lukewarm and complacent to now zealous, that means moving forward and excited. That's the fruit of the repentance. That's the fruit of them getting right with the Lord. And so he says, I want you to, uh, I want to see this radical change that would come as you repent of your sin of pride and of self-sufficiency. He says, be zealous and repent. Now, repentance is something that you hear a lot about. We talk about it, but it's so essential to the Christian life. Repentance is so essential to the thriving Christian life because repentance is that element of restoration of our relationship with God. It's that change of direction that we've always talked about. It's that moving away from my pursuits and and the things that I'm going after, like this church, the wealth and the self-sufficiency, and I'm turning now back towards God. Psalm 51 is a great chapter that deals with repentance. David is repenting after his sin with Bathsheba. And if you know that story, uh, this is a significant, significant event in his life. And so Psalm 51, I'm just going to read the first three verses. He says, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Then he says, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He says, For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That right there is such a great description of repentance. Thank God I acknowledge my sin. It is before me. And, and, and then asking God for that cleansing from it. Here's the great thing about our God. Any condition that takes us away from him can be restored by repentance and moving back in the right direction. That's what I love. That's why we can say today boldly, sinners can be saved. And I told you the guys this week, I had that opportunity to... Um, uh, do the funeral for Blair's friend. And uh, it was under a tent and there was, I don't know, 45 people or so that were there maybe. And, uh, and the majority of them outside of Blair and Cindy were not saved. And, uh, and, and, and they didn't have a program really or anything else going on. They just said, all right, get up there. And so I just got up and I shared the gospel with them. And there was a point in my message where I was speaking about Greg and his profession of faith. He did make a profession of faith. And I was able to stand before all of those people there and say, I believe that Greg is in heaven today, not because of the things that he had done, not because of his own merit, but he was in heaven. And I could say with authority, because of Jesus Christ. Because God says, if you will come to me, I will not, I will not cast you aside. And that's the boldness that we as Christians can have today. That listen, sinners can become saved because of God's mercy. By the way, those that are saved that are aware away from Christ can get right with God because of God's mercy. The same grace that saves us is the same grace that can restore us and make us right with him. And I'll tell you this, a lukewarm person and a lukewarm church can be restored. You know, in our, in our flesh, we're so quick to write people off, aren't we? We're so quick to say, ah, you know what? They had their chance with me and they, they, whatever it was, we write people off. It's never, listen, with Christ, all things are possible. Because of his mercy, people can be restored. And this is the amazing restorative love of our God. And here's what's so great is he places situations. He places uh, um, his word. He places sermons in our way to confront us for the purpose of restoration through repentance. That's why he says here, because I love you, I chasten you. That means I correct you. I come after you. And that is the love and mercy of our God. He desires that renewed relationship with us, And he comes and he does so lovingly, individually, and of course, to the church. And here in this situation, he comes with a loving approach. But then finally, we see an eternal invitation. And I love this in verse number 20 through verse number 21. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice 
and open the door. I will come unto him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. You know, we often use these verses to lead lost people to Christ, right? We say, God is standing at the door of your heart and he's knocking, you know, and you need to uh, let him in. I find it interesting that Jesus is saying to the church, I am standing at the door of your church. This is telling us that Jesus was outside of the church. He wasn't even in the doors. We say where two or three are gathered together, there I am in the midst of you. He's like, hey guys, can I come in? He was outside of the church. And so to a church, don't, don't miss out on this. To the church that is without Christ, he says, I am knocking at the door. And he says, if any man, that's individual, don't miss out on this. He says, I want to come into the church, but if there's any individual that will hear my voice, any individual that will open the door, that will let me come in, he says, I will, sub, that means I will, I will commune with him. I will eat with him. I, that's the idea of communion and him with me. Now, this is so interesting here. This church was largely rejecting Christ, but he says there's still individuals in there that will repent. There are still individuals that will get right with God. If you remember the church in Sardis, there was but a small remnant of them that he appealed to. And here he appeals to the individual. And what I want us to understand is that God can do great things in a church collectively, even if it's just through an individual. We need to be that individual. Now, collectively, man, if the whole church is like, God, I'm with you on this. God, I, we're, individually, we're all falling, Lord. What, what an amazing place that would be. And he's reaching out to them. He's saying, I'm, I'm at the door. Would you let me come in? And any individual that would reach out. And I want you to notice too that Christ is not impatient here. He's just knocking on the door. He's not pounding, you know, like, let me in. I'm going to crush this place. He's patient. And I'm so thankful that God is continually patient and knocking on the door of my heart when I'm away from him. So thankful that in my life, that the times that I've found myself outside of God's will and I've been living apart from him, that he just patiently waits and he knocks. And he brings things into my life, like we talked about before, things like his word or an individual or a message. Or, and, he, and he brings those to my life so that me as the individual would respond then to Christ. And God is always desiring to reach out to us in this way. He desires fellowship. He desires communion that desire for us to abide with him. See, this church here was an independent church that had need of nothing, but they were not abiding in Christ and they were not drawing their power from him. They had successful programs and they had all sorts of great things going on. They had need of nothing, but they had no fruit that came from abiding in Jesus Christ. And here's the amazing conclusion that when we invite him in, notice what he says there at the end of that verse, I will grant to sit with me in my throne uh, to him that overcometh, that's the, say, the saved, will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He says here that when we invite him in, the supper room becomes the throne room. <laughs> uh, where we commune with God, it eventually becomes the throne room where we are with him. It is through communion with Christ that we find that victory that we so desire. Verse number 22, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. The letters that God wrote to these seven churches, that Jesus himself with eyes of fire and feet of brass and, uh, brass and I mean, the, the, the things that he said to them, those letters that he wrote are God's x-rays to us today. 
This is a way for us to examine our own lives. This is so that we can examine uh, the, 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 the aspect and the, the depths really of our walk with God. Judgment is going to come to the world. We know that. But the first judgment that's going to come is going to come to the house of God. It's going to come to his people. It's a time for us to reflect. It's a time for us to renew and restore and repent. First Peter chapter four, verse seven, that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end of them that obey not the gospel of God? He says the judgment must first come to the house of God. That's what this is all about. Before judgment comes to the earth, God gave us these letters so that judgment might come to the church, that we might see what it is that God is trying to say to us. Now, I'm thankful though, though, that even though he brings some pretty strong condemnation here, he doesn't just abandon us. He lovingly corrects us. In all of these, he gives us opportunity to restore with him. And as a church, I want us to be encouraged. You say, man, what a downer. The worst church is last, you know, and all of these terrible things. And I see so much of it in my own life even, and we, we get that. But the great thing is that God lovingly corrects us. He gives us opportunities to restore, opportunities to repent. And we should be encouraged by that because no matter how bad it can get, no matter how terrible a individual or a church can be and how far away from God they can be, God does not leave us. He will always show us the way back. He will always give us the opportunity to come back. And my prayer is that we as a church would hear what God is saying to the churches, that we would hear what the Spirit is saying to our lives and that we would make decisions for Christ, that we would get back to where we need to be. When we began this series, we were pretty clear at the very beginning that, man, uh, Revelation's a book of, of tough things, isn't it? It's a book of, of correction. It's a book of, all right, God's judgment both to the church and judgment to the world that is to come. But we shouldn't fear it. We shouldn't fear it. We shouldn't hide from it. We should accept it and we should recognize that God chastens those whom he loves. He comes after those whom he loves. And so my, my encouragement for you guys today is, is really simply this. Have you heard what God has been saying to the churches? Have you heard it? Or have you still in your mind sort of made a, had a little bit of a disconnect where you're like, well, that was just to that church. That's not truly for me. All of these are for us. They're for us. And I want to encourage you to take them to heart. We hope that today's message was a help and encouragement to you in your walk with God. To stay connected with us, give us a like on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at Van City Baptist. Our prayer is that God will grow and bless you as you pursue His will for your life.